0: Well, let's turn in our Bibles again to the Gospel according to John. Uh, we've been studying there in the prologue to John's Gospel. I think if you're using the church Bible, you'll find the passage on page ten sixty three one thousand and sixty three We're going to focus this evening on verses six. Uh, 7 and 8, but uh, we haven't read the whole of the prologue, I think, since the first uh, study in this passage, so let me do that this evening. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made, So at last in the prologue, John tells us the identity of the one about whom he has been speaking. He has called him the Logos, the Word. He has called him the Son. But now he calls him Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Perhaps I can explain for those of you who are visitors that a number of weeks ago uh, we all came into the evening service, I in particular thinking that we were beginning a series, a relatively short series on the gospel according to John, and I at least walked out of the building that evening wondering if what we had actually begun was a long series on the prologue to John's gospel. And instead of Uh, Running through the gospel, we have, uh, I hope, not got stuck, but we have been focusing our attention in the providence of God on this remarkable prologue. And we've had a number of studies already in the opening five verses. This evening, as I say, we come to verses six through eight. I said, I think the very first study. That these first 18 verses in John's Gospel serve the way an overture serves to uh, some great or not so great musical creation, an opera, or perhaps to uh, some great oratorio. Uh, in the history of uh, these musical creations, uh, these little musical prologues, these overtures, have apparently served various functions. I'm not a musical expert, so you shouldn't trust me absolutely on this, but I believe this to be the case, that they've, they've served as everything from like the prelude an organist might play before a church service began. A church I served in Columbia, South Carolina, had had the same organist for about 40 years, wonderful man whom I loved deeply. He practiced uh, consistently during the week, and every single Sunday on the dot of 8.30 or on the dot of 11 o'clock or on the dot of 6 o'clock in the evening, his prelude would conclude on the dot, and you knew that the service would then begin. What was the function of the prelude? Free classical music? Well, it was free classical music, but I suppose it was intended to bring us all into the sense that something tremendously significant was about to begin, not just to quieten us down, but to give us this sense that we are on the verge of the most important hour of the week as we heard the invitation to come and worship God. And in the history of uh, musical overtures, in some cases those overtures have also served this function, not only of telling you that the opera is about to begin, or that the the great musical work is about to uh, come, uh, as it were, section by section upon you, or in some instances, the little themes that would be picked up later on and played out would be hinted at in the overture. And it's this that is the function of the first 18 verses in John's gospel. It isn't simply John saying, uh, let me tell you some things that will stretch your understanding, and then we'll get into the, quote, simple story about Jesus. Now, what he's doing is he's, he's telling us the, the inside of the story of Jesus, and he's preparing us for chapter after chapter in which the themes that he teases out in the prologue will be fleshed out in the story of Jesus' ministry. Of course, he's going to say, the Word became flesh. But in the prologue, he's saying, before you understand what it meant for him to be flesh, you need to know who it was who became flesh, and who it is, the identity of the person, who is the center point of my whole narrative. And, of course, at the end of the gospel, he he will tell us that he's been very selective in the ways in which he has told the story about Jesus. All the libraries in the world, he said, would not be able to contain the books that could be written about what Jesus actually did. And if we keep on going at this pace through John's gospel, uh, you will begin to understand why that was the case. And so this is, in a sense, the foundation for everything. He is moving from eternity into history. He's telling us how Christ was the eternal logos of God, the eternal Son of God, the Son of God with the Father, the Word of God face to face with God, Himself God and how it's this glorious One who is eternally God, who has come among us and taken our frail flesh. And, of course, His point is obvious. The wonder of the nativity, the wonder of the incarnation, of the identity of Jesus can never be really wonderful to you until you have a grasp of who it is that He really is. Uh, You and I, in a sense, are flesh, and some of us are wonderful and some of us aren't. But that God the Son should take flesh, that the Word should become flesh, the distance between these two realities – of the one who is face-to-face with God, who has now come face-to-face with us, and not only face-to-face with us, but visibly face-to-face with us. Flesh of our flesh. So that, as John says in the epistle, we can see Him, we can touch Him, we can handle Him, the very Word of God. And all of this, he's really saying to us, we need to bear in mind as as we watch Him Uh, along the dusty roads of Galilee and into Samaria, and then in the intimacy of his passion narrative and his rejection and his resurrection. And so, he's taken us from the logos face to face with God as the one who is both life and light, and gives light to all things, which, of course, he does. It is the first thing he does. Through the Word of God, God creates light that there may be life. And he says this light continues to shine because the light is created by the one who is himself life, he reveals Himself. His fingerprints, His autograph is to be seen on all of life, on the whole of creation. Uh, you know, you still do things like this, don't you? You go into, maybe go into a shop in Princess Street if, you're a, if you were a visitor and you want to buy something Scottish and you, you buy it and you take it home and you give it to somebody and they turn it upside down. What does it say? It doesn't often say, made in Edinburgh. It probably says, made in China, or made in South Korea, made in India. Now, you see, what John is saying is that if you have eyes to see, if you have eyes to see, and he presupposes that now in our sinfulness we do not have those eyes to see. But if we had eyes to see, there would be a sense in which we would be able to notice in everything that has been created the the stamp, the autograph, the reflection of the eternal Word. He is the one who illumines the whole world because the whole world is his creation. The whole world is also his revelation. And it was all last time, therefore, in that sense, we we cannot escape from being surrounded by the revelation of God. We can't escape it. We can try and suppress it and repress it, as Paul says in Romans 1, but we cannot ever escape it and yet he says we're in darkness. And at the end, last time, we noticed how he says that although the light still shines, the darkness has in two senses probably not been able to master it. The darkness hasn't been able to understand it and master it in that sense, but nor has the darkness been able to extinguish the light and master it in that sense. I don't know if anyone has composed a a piece of music based entirely on the prologue to John's gospel. But if they were going to do that, or if you are going to do that, then it would be just here at the end of verse 5 that whatever Whatever section in the orchestra was playing as the words were coming to mind that the darkness has not overcome it, I think you could almost see the conductor's hand going out as they, as they do. It must be quite something to be a conductor. And going to the part of the orchestra that has been playing the expression of darkness and with his gesticulation, bringing bringing the sound to an end. As though to to leave the audience wondering what next. And John, who is our conductor in this sense of this overture to the gospel, he does exactly that, and then he does something that's very, very interesting. It's so interesting that actually I think you can scour the internet. I tried to scour the internet for sermons on these three verses. And there are zillions of sermons on the internet these days, on just about anything you want to imagine. And what struck me was how few sermons there are actually on these three verses. You might find a sermon on the words, there was a man sent from God. But a sermon on these three verses... Now, now why do they not exist? Because these words interrupt the flow of what John is saying. They're they're incidental. This is incidental music. They don't really matter. I mean, he's speaking about eternal things. But then our composer, he, he has He has paused the music in a sense. And we want to go on from the darkness to the light. And you'll notice that he actually does go from the darkness to the light in verse 9. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. That's what we want to get to. But you see what he's doing. I mean, why should he mess us around by saying that there was a man sent from God whose name was John who came as a witness that people might believe it wasn't the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. Why does he say all that when Jesus is his real theme? Oh, well, you see, it's because he's, he is about to tell us about the light coming into the world. But first of all, he wants to say that the light comes into the world and into a world that in God's economy has been prepared by a forerunner. It's as though though he's saying, you know, we want to rush on in history and providence to the big things that God is going to do, and the conductor is saying, now, wait a minute. Let's see how God does this because there are things to learn from the way in which God does this. Actually, the most obvious thing to learn from this whole narrative is a very simple thing that applies probably to most of us in this room who are Christians, and it's this. Before we meet Jesus Christ as a living Savior and Lord, it is highly likely that we have met a man or a woman who was sent from God. Some of you in the room may never have met a Christian in all your life and somehow or another wanted to read the Bible and came to faith in Jesus Christ without anyone ever telling you about Jesus, without you ever noticing or knowing anyone who is a Christian. If so, you are probably very much in the minority in the whole of human history. But what John is saying to us here is just hold on a minute, because I want you to see how God works in this extraordinary incident of bringing the Savior into the world. He employs a pattern that He will use again and again and again in bringing men and women all over the world to that Savior. He will send into their lives a man. Or a woman who points them by life, by lip, to Jesus Christ. And there are two particular things I want us to notice about what he says here about this uh, forerunner to Jesus Christ. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. These simple words, he first of all introduces us to the identity of the forerunner. And he describes them in a very particular way. Um, it sounds, well, how else would you describe it? There was a man sent from God. But to John writing his gospel, to John The man steeped in the Old Testament Scriptures and writing his gospel now, almost certainly after the other three gospels have been written, to people who have come to see the connectedness between the Old Testament Scriptures and the New Testament Scriptures, those simple words are full of significance for this reason, that there hadn't been a man sent from God as far as people knew for hundreds of years. I wonder if you remember how our Old Testament ends. Do you remember how it ends? In the book of Malachi? Malachi chapter 4 and verses 4 and 5. It it isn't, I mean, it's an accident of publishing that there is a kind of semi-blank page between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Uh, most of your Bibles, I don't know if this is true on your Kindle, but most of your Bibles will have something between the Old Testament and the New Testament, and that one page is about 400 years or more. When the people of God had had no prophet coming to them and saying, thus says the Lord. But the very last words of our Old Testament Scriptures, now listen to them. Malachi chapter 4, verse 5 Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And so you see what John is doing? In the very language he's using, he is picking up those closing words of the Old Testament Scriptures that God would send a man, that this man would be a prophet, and that this, this prophet would be an Elijah-like figure, and that he would be the forerunner, he would be the announcer, that the great day of the Lord, the day that the people of God had been looking forward to for generations, the day of the Messiah, the day of salvation and judgment, that that day would come. And so these very innocent-looking words are really an indication that the prophecy of Malachi chapter 4 is being fulfilled. And that although, interestingly, later on, when John is asked who he is, are you the prophet, they say, meaning the prophet that was promised by Moses, the prophet like himself God would raise up, no, I'm not that prophet. Are you Elijah? He says, no, I'm not Elijah. And yet Jesus says, you remember in in the Gospels, that if you've eyes to see, he really was Elijah. I think John is saying, No, I'm not Elijah in the sense that you are expecting the Elijah who lived in the days of the kings to come again quite literally. I'm not that Elijah. <laughs> you you are not understanding how God's kingdom is going to work. But in this sense, surely he is Elijah, because he is the man who is sent from God. And very interestingly. And again, in a sense, I think when you, when you get into this, you think it's very surprising that we preachers have not stopped longer on these verses because when he says, his name was John, well, your inclination is to shrug your shoulders and say, ho-hum, his name was John. Lots of people's names, John. Except I suspect John was written not only after the first three Gospels but in the knowledge of the contents of the first three Gospels. At least would have assumed the knowledge of Luke's Gospel. And what do we learn from Luke's Gospel? What we learn from Luke's Gospel is he was never meant by anybody to be called John. You remember when his mother said, his name's going to be John. remember what the neighbors were saying? Can't call him John. That's not his father's name. You can't call him John. But when Zacharias wrote, his name is John, then uh, he was released from, from that little judgment he had experienced and was able to speak. Now, who said his name was to be John? How many of you have got children that you've named? How many of you were told that name directly from heaven? This name was given to him contrary to all parental, familial, and neighborly expectations by God. It wasn't incidental that he was called John. He was to be called John because of what John means. And if you're called John, you know what John means. It means Yahweh is gracious. It's an, it's an, amazing, it's an amazing exegesis of Malachi chapter 4 verses 5 following. There's going to be a man sent from God. He's going to come in the spirit and power of Elijah. He's going to turn back the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children to the fathers. And you can almost envisage this happening at the River Jordan as as the, as the whole country seems to come to John in this amazing awakening sense of their sinfulness and their need of repentance and forgiveness. And yet, although he is the harbinger of the great and terrible day of the Lord, it's as though God is going to create space. And in that space, he's going to show himself to be a God of infinite grace. And so, he's introduced John the gospel writer, introduces us to John the Baptist by telling us that he is the prophet sent from God and that his very name means that God is going to be gracious. Whatever he is the the forerunner to, it is a message of grace. And that, of course, is why the second thing that John, the gospel writer, tells us about this John, not only that he was a man sent from God whose name was John. not only tells us what his identity was, he tells us what his role was. And you'll notice he puts it, interestingly, both positively and negatively. Verse 7, he puts it positively. Verse 8, he puts it negatively. Let me take verse 8, first of all, just to kind of Uh, not get it out of the way, but for us to catch a sense of what's going on here. Verse 7, he wants to say to us that he comes as a witness about the light. But verse 8, he makes very clear he was not the light. He was only a witness to the light. And it's interesting, later on in John's gospel, in more than one place, John makes it very clear we should never confuse John the Baptist with Jesus Christ. He makes it clear here, do not confuse the moon with the sun. Do not confuse the lamp with the light. Now, why does he do this? well, he surely must do this for the most obvious reason, that he, he, wants, he wants to show us the, the exclusive glory of the Lord Jesus. Uh, you remember how Jesus actually says about John, to put it in the vernacular, he's the greatest man who ever lived. He is the greatest of all the prophets. If you can think yourself back into uh, the, the days when John the Baptist ministered, John the Baptist saw things through his ministry Jesus never saw. Jesus never saw through his preaching and teaching the kind of wave of repentance that John the Baptist did. We also know, we actually learn later on in this chapter, that some of Jesus' first disciples were first of all disciples of John the Baptist. We learn from the Synoptic Gospels that when John was actually uh, martyred, it was some of his disciples asked for his body in order that it might be buried. We also know, you must have noticed this reading through the Acts of the Apostles, in Acts chapter 18, there was a man who eventually turned out perhaps to be the most eloquent preacher in the early church, a man by the name of Apollos, who knew only the baptism of John. He didn't know anything about the baptism of Jesus. He did know anything about the day of Pentecost. And remember in the very next chapter, in Acts chapter 19, Paul comes to Ephesus, which is where Apollos was. He comes to Ephesus, and he finds a group of men, and 12 of them out of this group. I imagine there was a bigger group, but 12 of them out of this group come to him, and they need the gospel explained to them because Luke tells us in Acts chapter 19 that all they knew was the baptism of John. Um, if you can see yourself back, I mean, some of you can hardly see this, but even see yourself back into a world before cell phones and Twitter accounts and Facebook pages, and even before the Royal Mail. If you can see yourself back to a day when missionaries left this country, got on boats, and sailed for months… And months and months to go to the Far East. And if you can envisage yourself far beyond that, where communication is very poor, then you might be able to take in the fact that there seemed to have existed a group of disciples of John, so devoted to John, so devoted to his memory, so appreciative of what he had taught that they knew nothing about the christian gospel and apparently they spread they were they were they were in ephesus of all places because of course jewish people had been scattered throughout the world and they were devoted to john the baptist now here's a very interesting thing um, First 50 years of the second century, uh, there was a Christian apologist by the name of Justin Martyr in Ephesus. And he tells in one of his books the story of meeting a Jew called Trifle, whether this is just the way in which he presents his apologetic for the Christian faith or whether it's recounting an actual Incident in his life it is neither here nor there, but in the in the process of his conversation with Trypho, the Jew, somewhere seventy years perhaps after John's Gospel was written, he goes through a list of people, and he says, now, you wouldn't regard these as true Jews. You wouldn't regard Sadducees denying the resurrection as true Jews. You wouldn't regard Pharisees all taken up with the incidental details of the Old Testament rather than the things that really matter in the Old Testament. they're, they're not true Jews. And in the list he gives, do you know who he mentions? Baptists. Now, those are not the first reference in history to what we call Baptists. That said, when I was a very little boy and didn't understand the gospel, I did actually think that in the Baptist church, they must worship John the Baptist. Why would they be called Baptist churches? And although these people did not worship John the Baptist, somehow or another, either through ignorance or by persistent devotion to John, looking, as it were, at the finger rather than the one to whom the finger pointed. All their focus was on John. And here is John, the gospel writer, helping such people never to confuse the messenger of Christ with Christ himself. Now, you, you may be sitting there thinking, well, that's all very interesting history. It's all very interesting to hear about Justin Martyr or very interesting to think that this is what John's doing, but that's not relevant, is it? Have you any idea how relevant that is? Of how easy it is um, how easy it is for people who have perhaps a great preacher as their minister so to be devoted to Him that they cannot see Jesus. You know, Robert Murray McChain once wrote, I think, in his diary that in the days of the first secession from the Church of Scotland, the Erskines. I'm a minister in the denomination the Erskines founded, so I know of what I speak. Robert Murray McChain wrote, truly or falsely, that the people could not see the Lord Jesus over the heads of the Erskines. You know, that sometimes happens. I remember Mr. Still, William Still, telling me when I was a young minister, of the only time he ever went to speak at the Keswick Convention. And he was, you know, he was from the northeast of Scotland. Most of the people at the Keswick Convention didn't know there was a northeast of Scotland. They were from the southeast of England probably. And so he's walking out of the big tent that the convention used to be held in, in the good old days, hardy Christians. And as he walked out of the tent, a lady turned to him, no idea who Mr. Still was. Shame on her. And said to him, I'll never forget him telling me this. She said to me, Wasn't he wonderful tonight? You know what Mr. Still said? Who? He had got it in one. She wasn't talking about the Lord Jesus. She was talking about the preacher. She was to, she she couldn't see Jesus over the head of the preacher. And you see, there's there's another side to it, isn't it? True of all of us. How easy it is to to slide in to thinking in our witness or in our refusal to witness because of the embarrassment of the whole situation that I'm really more important than the Lord Jesus. And so what John says here, which is just historically true, is also carries with it a great message for us. He's saying you need to understand, I am saying, and as he goes on in the gospel, he says, John Himself made it clear, I am not the light. I am not the Christ. I am not the Savior. I am only a voice crying in the wilderness. I'm only a finger pointing to Him. Keep your eyes fixed on the Lord Jesus. I know, one of the strangest things that uh, you, would, you would need to have seen this, I think, to believe it But the better a ministry of the Word you enjoy, the more likely this is to happen. You would think it would be the reverse, wouldn't you? But at least in my observation, it's been in the congregations where they've had a strong and marvelous ministry of the Word that uh, despite all the minister might do, people's eyes get lowered. Apparently, it's it's easier, to, it's easier to focus on the man you can see than the Savior you can't see. And so this is why John, the gospel writer, is emphasizing to us that uh, it was only a man who was sent from God. Just a man. Just a finger. Just a voice, as he said himself, crying in the wilderness. Because, now back to the positive statement in verse 7, because he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. Now, this is interesting also, and with this we must finish. We, We all know what a witness is, except here's an interesting statistic, and I know you can prove anything by statistics, but this is really quite An interesting statistic. The first three Gospels use the witness family of words, I think, six times, and four of those times they're talking about false witnesses. John's Gospel uses the witness family, either the verb or the noun, I think, 44 times. Now that should tell you something. when somebody keeps repeating an idea, either they've got a very bad vocabulary or that idea is really important. And in John's gospel, this idea is really important. Because what John shows us in his gospel is that all the way through the gospel, Jesus Jesus is uh, undergoing a kind of public trial and it will come to a consummation when he is actually publicly, officially tried on the one hand, by the Roman law court, and on the other hand, by the Jewish law court. And so right from the beginning, when he says John came as a witness, he wants to just, you see, this is the overture. It's as though he's saying, now just keep your eye eye out for this idea of witness and people bearing witness. Later on in chapter 1, You remember the story about the fishing brothers. I think I found the Messiah. Or in chapter 4, the woman at the well, rushing back to the people from whom she had ostracized herself and vice versa, saying, I think I might have found the Christ. Or that marvelous story of the man who's born blind and, and becomes the one man who can see in the midst of all his contemporaries, and they're, they're asking him theological questions about the identity of Jesus. And he says, you wanted to be a disciple as well? This whole series of witnesses, you see. And undergirding that, later on, Jesus says, and there's a great witness, not just John, but the Spirit bears witness to who I am. The Father bears witness to who I am. The works I do bear witness to who I am. And all the while he's on trial, all these witnesses are pointing to him as John pointed to him saying, this is the Messiah. And his works testify to it, and his Father testifies to it. And these people who become his disciples, they testify to it, and he testifies to it. And then he's brought at the end in the trial and they try and bring these false witnesses and the false witnesses can't agree. And then at the climax of it all, Pontius Pilate, he gives his witness. This man is utterly innocent. And then they crucify him. And you see John is bringing us to the the very heart of the gospel. I mean John the gospel writer, bring us to the very heart of the gospel, that the one to whom men and women and the heavenly Father and the Holy Spirit and the works He's done and His own words have borne witness to His identity. He is the Word of God, the Son of God. He is the light of the world. And the darkness seeks to destroy it, but will never be able to destroy it. And he rises again. And right at the end of his gospel, John tells us, uh, do you know why I've told you all these things? I've written down all these things for the very same reason that John the Baptist preached. And that reason is this that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. And then he actually ends the gospel by writing this. This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things And then whoever wrote those words adds, we know that his testimony is true. So what was John's testimony? What was John the Baptist's testimony? Well, it comes later on, doesn't it, in the first chapter where he says, I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. And his first words when he pointed his finger, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You know, one of the oldest questions in the Bible is this, the question that Isaac asks his dad on the way up Mount Moriah, not knowing that the plan is that Abraham will sacrifice Isaac on Mount Moriah And Isaac says, Father, we've got everything, but where is the lamb for the sacrifice? And Abraham says, my son, God himself will provide the lamb for the sacrifice. Day after day, year after year, decade after decade, century after century, millennium after millennium, These people to whom the promise of salvation had been given watched lambs being led to the slaughter. And they knew that these could not be the sacrifices that could take away sin. The sacrifice of a lamb cannot atone for the sins of a human being. And so the question is asked all the way through the pages of the Old Testament Scriptures. Abraham promised that God himself would provide the lamb for the sacrifice. Where is the lamb? We could put that in terms of Craig's sermon this morning, wasn't it? What's our greatest need? Our greatest need is to have someone who will be a sacrifice that will bring the forgiveness of our sins. Someone who, as it were, will, will reach out, like our leprosy passage this evening and the leper passage this morning, who will, who will reach out and touch us and give us his innocence and take from us our pollution. And here is the man sent from God, just like you, a man or a woman, sent from God. What is... His task, what is your task? To say to sinners, Behold, God himself has provided the Lamb. He was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement to bring us peace was upon him. With his stripes we are healed. He was led as a Lamb to the slaughter. And all of this John is giving to us in a a nutshell, as it were, to prepare us and urge us to look exclusively to the Lord Jesus and to none other and to nowhere else for our salvation. Follow his finger as he points you to Jesus. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the way in which, as we were thinking right at the very beginning, this is a gospel in which an elephant could swim and yet little lambs could paddle. We thank you that our Lord Jesus is sufficient for every single one of us, for all of our needs and all of our sins. We thank you that He is the perfect Lamb of God. And we thank you, as we read John's gospel, for pressing a pause button here through the gospel writer to prepare us, to help us to make sure that we don't look anywhere else but to Jesus alone. O Lord, how easily our eyes are deflected and our hearts become cold. Warm our hearts, we pray, by your word and spirit, to fix our eyes on the Lord Jesus, that he may be everything to us. We pray it in his name. Amen.